So, good afternoon, everyone. My name's Guy Armstrong. I'm one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock, and I'll be with you this afternoon for Sutta Study of Majjhima Nikaya number two. I appreciate all of you turning up on a um, sunny weekend afternoon. Not only is it a sunny weekend afternoon, it's Father's Day, so it may have been a sacrifice. I appreciate everybody coming here to study the Dhamma. So I hope you have a copy of the handout, which is on the table as you came in, the copy of uh, Sutta number two from the Majjhima. So we'll, uh, we'll dive in. By virtue of where it's placed in the Majjhima, we can assume that this is a fairly important discourse. And because it's titled All the Taints, it's got quite a comprehensive significance. And as we get into it, I think you'll see there's a lot, there's a lot here. So the title in Pali is Sabasava Sutta, which means discourse on all what are being translated the taints, discourse on all the asavas. The word for all is saba. You might have heard something like the chant, sabe, sata, suki, hontu. Sabe or saba means all. And the word asava is being translated here as taint. So before we get into the uh, gist of the sutta, let's talk about this word asava. It's a very important word in the teachings in the suttas and the way uh, it's being translated as taints is not quite satisfactory. So let's look at the etymology. And before we do that, just to explain, to remove the curiosity factor, the asavas are three in number in this sutta. And they are the asava of sense desire, the asava of being, and the asava of ignorance. We'll get to the significance of those three and how they play out. But just so you know, that's what this word encompasses. The word itself is difficult to translate into English satisfactorily. The word sava means flow. And the long a in front of it means either in or out. And you can't tell from just the word whether it's meant to be in or out. So it either means something flowing in or it means something flowing out. And different translators will take it in different ways. But in any case, it means flows in the human mind and heart. It means <coughs> mental qualities that are, that are coming into our experience. So you could say they're flowing into the mind, or you can say because the mind includes them as potentials, when they arise, they're flowing out of the mind. So some translators would take this ah to mean in, and they might translate it as inflows or influxes. And the last time I heard Bhikkhu Bodhi speak, I think he likes the word influxes now. But at this time, which was almost 20 years ago, he was calling them taints. The translators who like the word ah to mean out might call them outflows, or I really like uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu's translation, effluence, because of the resonance with sewage systems. <laughs> because these flows are not beautiful. These are um, impurities of the mind and heart, taints, as they're described here. So one of the earliest translators, I think Bhikkhu Nyanamoli, used the word taint. Another translator uh, translated it as uh, cankers. So you get the sense these are not flattering descriptions of what's in the mind. Of course, the Buddha had lots of different um, lists. This is one of the lists. He had lots of different lists for the unbeautiful qualities in the mind. What are some others that you're familiar with? The hindrances is a set. The three poisons. The three poisons. Defilements, more or less synonymous with the three poisons. The fetters, another list. Underlying tendencies, another list. So each of these lists has a different, you might say, context or connotation. The hindrances are especially the ones that arise when we turn our attention to meditation. We come into the present moment and develop the quality of mindfulness. 
The five hindrances are the forces that come to oppose that. The defilements, the three poisons, uh, greed, hatred, and delusion, are usually used around the quality of action. It can be action of mind, action of speech, action of body. So they're the influences on action. They're described as the roots of the unwholesome. And um, because of their relation to action, they're closely tied to karma, and they have an ethical component to them. So this list of the taints, what is this about? This is the list, I think, that tries to address the most fundamental, deep urges in the heart and mind that give rise to our bondage and suffering. So in some ways, here the Buddha is pointing to the most fundamental forces that are within us and that lead us um, into difficulty. Here's one place. This is from uh, Majjhima 36, where the Buddha described the taints. He says, these qualities defile, bring renewal of being, give trouble. They give trouble. Ripen in suffering and lead to future birth, aging, and death. So, these are such fundamental forces that we can assume they're operating most of the time in us. Sometimes more actively, sometimes more in a more underlying way. But they're there uh, most of the time. So we want to give uh, close attention to what all of these things are. And this sutta gives us some, some practical ways of understanding how to deal with them. That's the beauty of it. The Buddha isn't just going to point us to sources of suffering in the sutta. He's also going to tell us how we can work uh, with these forces. Okay. So let's take a look at the, at the first uh, paragraphs. And as we've done before, I like to have people read these sections, um, if you would, as we go around. Chris, can you read paragraph one? Sure. First, please. Uh, thus I have heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in, uh, living at Savati in Jetta's Grove, something or another park. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus, venerable sir, they replied. The Blessed One said this. Thank you. So this is a setting that we visited before in this series. Uh, Savati was home to one of the kings, King Pasenadi, and it was uh, Kosala. It was one of the areas the Buddha frequented a lot. He spent something like 25 rains retreats in Savati. Anatta Pindika is the rich merchant who was a benefactor and donated the land of Jeta's Grove that became one of his principal dwelling places. You can go today and visit this place in northern India in the town of Shravasti, as it's called in Sanskrit and walk where the Buddha is said to have walked, sit where the Buddha is said to have sat. The thus have I heard indicates that it's Ananda who's reciting the sutta, his attendant, for many years. So let's, paragraph two, please. Because I shall teach you a discourse on the restraint of all the taints. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, venerable sir, the bhikkhus replied, the blessed one said thus. Okay, thank you. So we start off, and he announces that he's going to teach this sutta on the restraint of the taints. So when one is restraining something, you know, the image is of like a wild horse that wants to pull every which direction, and one puts some reins on that horse, in order to bring it onto a useful and workable track. So you can think of this as reining in, controlling, managing these forces that are within us all, so that uh, the wildness eventually becomes tamed. This is an image the Buddha uses a lot in the discourses of taming the mind or taming individuals. And what we need to be tamed from are the forces of these taints. 
these asavas. So this is the introduction, and then in the very next paragraph, it moves to a different topic in paragraph three. And bhikkhus, I say that the destruction of the taints is for one who knows and sees, not for one who does not know and see. Who knows and sees what? Wise attention and wise, unwise attention. When one attends unwisely, unarisen taints arise and arisen taints increase. When one attends wisely, unarisen taints do not arise and the arisen taints are abandoned. Okay, thank you. So, in the first paragraph, he says we're going to learn how to restrain the taints. And in this second paragraph, there's a different emphasis, which is the destruction of the taints. You can understand this as a developmental process. When we begin in practice, we need to restrain the taints in order to let the mind come to some degree of calm and peace. But eventually, as the mind becomes more developed, more peaceful, and is on the track, basically where the enlightenment factors are being brought into maturity, then the full, in the fullness of that, the path leads to the destruction of these qualities. So for one who is fully freed, fully enlightened, these qualities no longer arise in the mind. They are destroyed as part of the process of the path. And when you read in the sutta that someone has realized the destruction of the taints, that's a synonym for full enlightenment. So that's a word that comes in a lot. Um, the Pali is asava kaya, meaning destruction of taints. Um, so it's the, you know, it's the fruition, it's the goal, it's the aim of the Buddha's teachings that one comes to the destruction of these forces. Now, there's a very important piece in this paragraph on how we progress, but before we do that, I want to spend a little more time on what these three taints are that we're going to look at restraining and eventually uprooting. So the first is uh, the taint of sense desire, or sense pleasures. In Pali, it's kamasava, the taint of sensuality, and it just... It refers to the way that our minds want to go to what's pleasurable. We'll come back and spend a little more time on this, but that's to introduce it. The second one is bhavasava, and it's translated, I think it's going to be translated here as being, but what it really means is desire for existence. So when Bhikkhu Bodhi explains it, he actually talks about it as the craving for existence but it's simply referred here as bhavasava. Bhava means being or existence. So shorthand is the taint of being. You could also translate it as becoming, <coughs> wanting to be something. Or you could understand it as the craving for existence. And the third of the uh, asavas is ignorance. The Pali term is avija. Combined with a taint, it's avijasava. Avidya? Sorry? What is it in Sanskrit? What is it? In Sanskrit. Do you know the Sanskrit word? It's the same. I think it's vidya, vidya, avidya in Sanskrit. Is that the same as the unwholesome root of uh, delusion? It's very similar. You could say it's more or less synonymous, synonymous with delusion. They're used in a little different context. Delusion is kind of used in the three poisons mm -hmm. to mean kind of the immediate quality of mind that leads us to act one way or another. And ignorance is seen as a, an underlying quality that turns the whole thing wrong, you might say. Where else are you familiar with this term of Ija or ignorance? What, what other list do you know it from? What link is it in dependent origination? It's the beginning of the chain of dependent origination. So that really points to its primacy in the unfolding of the whole chain of suffering. 
So um, let's, let's take a look at each of these three in a little more detail so we understand where the sutta is aiming and, um, and pointing. So uh, kam, kamasava, the taint of sense desire, you could say it's a craving for agreeable contact. It's, this word sense desire is usually limited to the five physical senses. It is usually not associated with the sense door of the mind, but it can be. You'll see in this, um, in one of the readings that I'll mention, it can be connected with the mind um, as well. But generally it's the five, the Buddha describes as the five chords of sensual pleasure. So that is pleasant touch, Pleasant, uh, pleasant sight, pleasant sound, pleasant smell, pleasant taste, pleasant touch. So let's just think about each of these. I like to think about it in terms of economics. Where there's a lot of interest, there's a lot of money. So pleasant sights. What industries can you think of that are founded on gratifying our sense of sight? Media. The media, advertising. Clothing, cosmetics, cosmetics, movies, movies. sorry, yeah, so all these are designed to provide human beings pleasant experiences in the area of seeing and there we spend billions of dollars a year gratifying that sense of sight in all these different ways, okay? Um, pleasant sounds. Music. music. Basically the music industry, both live and recorded. You think of all the symphony halls, all the rock concerts, all the CDs and MP3s that are out in the world. These are all to gratify that sense of beautiful contact of hearing. Okay, um, sight, sound, smell. Some, some food, but primarily perfume and cosmetics, isn't it? It's just about smell. It's about nothing else. Just deodorants, air freshener, right. Febreze has made a lot of money on our need for pleasant smells. Incense. Yes. Soaps. Yeah, they do something more, but the smell thing is embedded in there for... Yes, like you receive an advertising brochure in a magazine and it's scented for various reasons. So that's a big industry. Sight, sound, smell, taste. Food. Wow. What? Chocolate. Yeah, not, not particularly for nutritional value, but just for taste. Chocolate. But the whole food industry, restaurants and um, food stores and things we prepare at home. Not to mention wine. And then we get into drink. <laughs> sure. Fruit juices and soda pop. Soda pop, no nutritional value, but billions Negative. of dollars. Negative. And wine and alcohol spirits and all of that. Huge industry, a lot of money going into that. Of course, food is necessary for survival, so to some extent that's natural. But we could all eat you know, what, tofu and brown rice every day and take care of our survival, but that wouldn't satisfy the taste need. So billions and billions of dollars go into providing delicious tastes. Touch, bodily sensations. Touch, what industries? Massage. Clothing, little. Yeah, clothing for keeping warm, right? Massage. Massage. Sex, anyone? The sex industry is much bigger than we normally know about because it's an underground economy. A lot of it's an underground economy, but a very big industry. Prostitution, pornography. I guess that's the biggest one for touch, isn't it? It's, it's a big one for touch. I don't know how it compares to the massage industry, but it's a, it's a pretty big one for touch. Well, what about... Hot pads and, hot pads and also hmm? 
pornography a lot about sight. Also. Sight, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it comes back to, to touch. Luxurious bedding mm-hmm. and Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bedding, furniture mm-hmm. can be... How much is a Duxiana bed? Mattress, $7,000 or something? Wow. Really, it's amazing. There's a, there's a store in San Rafael. I don't, I've never seen anyone go in it, but uh, there is a store. And what about comfortable shoes? That's all about sensation. The chiropractic industry. Bath and shower products. Bath and shower. Mm-hmm. Chairs. Cha- yeah. Chairs, yeah. So there's a lot of money about comfortable, bringing bodily comfort to us. Pharmaceutical industry, how many of those are based on painkillers and relief of itches and bodily discomfort? So human beings have been searching for these five cords of sense pleasure forever and putting a lot of money into them. And of course we don't want to be in pain, But then we start to look at how much of this attention is for greater and greater senses of pleasure. Um, It's a big deal. And when you think about the other big deals in human life, you think about, I think about money and power. But how much of money and power is about getting these five cords of sense pleasure? Why do you want more money? Oh, you know, better vacations, you know, go to tropical environments, or you want to wear more beautiful clothes, or enjoy the best night's sleep. So money is used, a lot of the ways we put money to use is in providing more sense pleasures. Could you comment a little more on the idea that in this context it generally doesn't include um, mental desire? And I I guess Hmm. I was struck by that because we've been taught for so long that in kind of Buddhist teaching, there isn't that artificial distinction. Mm-hmm. So the, c- the question is about um, these five chords of sense pleasure generally don't include the mind, and why, why is that distinction made? <coughs> my, my guess is, it's not really spelled out clearly in the text, but my guess is that when we start to understand what makes the mind harmonious, we're in the field of meditation and wholesome cultivation. So, let's say we, we learn something about how to attain a little bit of inner peace or happiness, and then we lose it, and then the desire for it re-arises. Well, the craving for that is still suffering. That's still true. But if we look at the question, how we lost that, carefully, it will lead us back with wisdom to rediscover it. So one of the things the Buddha said that was quite interesting is um, when he developed the four jhanas, the first time he found them, he said he was at first worried that, because these are about bodily, partly about bodily sensations, partly about mental stillness. He said, I was first worried that the pleasure of the four jhanas would lead me into trouble. And then I saw It wasn't going to happen like that. So I let myself experience the pleasure of the four jhanas. So what that says to me is, why is that not a problem? Because if we want to get back there, we we know how to do it, and it's a wholesome path back there. And so that's how I kind of understand mental states. We can crave for them, and the craving is suffering. But there's a wise component in there which says, if you really want happiness, that can be a very wholesome thing. So we say when we teach loving-kindness meditation, the very wish for happiness, our own happiness or another's, is a wholesome wish. And the reason especially it's a wholesome wish for us is that we, f- we can find out how to get there. And that journey is wholesome. So that's my understanding of why it's treated differently. If we want to be having pleasurable mental states, we're basically entering the path of meditation and the path of the Dharma, if we do it with wisdom. Were you uh, alluding to or saying um, in that comment that there is no such thing as addiction to meditation 
pleasantness? So this is a little you know, different question. This is a little different question. Sounded like what you were alluding to. It's a little different question. So Chris, say a little about what you're pointing to in addiction to meditation pleasantness. Tell me a little where the question's well, coming you, from. Could one end up just, you know, finding a, a, a pleasant jhana state and saying, hey, what else do, what else do I need? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just kind of like a heroin addict. Uh, hang out there. Not, okay. Not do much else. Okay. Um, I mean, yeah, more or less. So from the, you know, from the point of view of a Buddhist teacher, one could develop <laughs> a liking for the jhana states and uh, consider that sufficient. Or pleasant states of concentration even short of jhana. And consider that sufficient. And just go back there again and again and hang out there and have one's path stop there. So, what would, a Buddhist, what would the Buddha say about that? Well, number one, he wouldn't say it's a bad thing. Because when the mind is in a jhana state, it's, one of the terms is it's secluded from the hindrances. So one is dwelling in quite a wholesome place. One hasn't done unskillful things to get there. One hasn't robbed a grocery store to get the money to pay for a heroin fix, for example. One has had to develop moment-to-moment attention and mindfulness, connection to the body, in order to reach that state. So one has employed wholesome means to get there, and one has arrived at a wholesome place. And so that is a good thing. Now, if one stops one's practice there, that's unfortunate because one has the foundation to go further with insight. But stopping there, I don't see as a bad outcome. One has samatha. One doesn't have vipassana. One has samatha. One hasn't uprooted the kilesas or the asavas, but one has suspended the hindrances temporarily. It also Thank just you. seems impossible. I mean, I, my experience yeah. of impermanence is that Mm-hmm. Get there and you think, oh, I'll just hang out here. Mm-hmm. And you may think that, but you know. Yes. Right. I don't yeah. sort of don't worry about it because I don't see it as yeah. real possibility. Right, right. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, what turns these samatha experiences into vipassana is the reflection on impermanence. When one exits, as one has to from a jhana state, one reflects on the impermanent nature of that state, and that very reflection leads one to see the dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of that conditioned state, and therefore to spark the urge to become free from dukkha altogether. That is the way it's supposed to work. The truth is that um, it works that way for most people. Most people can't hang out in the, in the jhana states you know, for, for very long at a time. There's a funny story that Ajahn Jumnian Tells. And the other point is the jhana states don't uproot the hindrances or kilesas or asavas. They just suspend them. So he had a nun um, whom he had trained who was very good at concentration. One of the higher stages of concentration, one can sit for uh, seven days at a time without coming out, without needing to eat, without needing to move. And this nun that he had trained was able to do that. She could enter with a resolve, one of the higher jhanas, stay in meditation posture for seven days, and then come out. She had to give herself the resolve to exit before she went in, or she might not have come out. So, so going in, one says, may I abide here for seven days, and then at the end, comes out. And then he said she would go around the monastery complaining about what all the people were doing. <laughs> Because her aversion hadn't really been touched by this experience. She'd gone into the very pleasant space for seven days. She came out and resumed her aversive habits of mind because they hadn't been under, either understood or uprooted or restrained, we might say. So, whenever jhanas are taught, teachers usually point to this uh, risk that one gets too fascinated by the pleasure of the jhana. But in actual practice, most people that I know of, 
move through that and see the, see the limitation and are more interested in the vipassana or the insight practice that follows. So I haven't seen too many people in our circle get caught up in that. But it's a possibility. But I, I do appreciate you bringing this other word, addiction, because this is a relationship that does develop to the five types of sense pleasure. And you could say, in, in small ways, we're all addicted to those sense pleasures. I mean, most of us are. I am. When I go on a retreat, I miss the comforts of my home. I miss the food that I want. I miss the couch that I like to sit on. I miss my books or music. Or, you know, I miss things. So to me, that's a sign. I'm going through a little bit of withdrawal when I go on, on retreat. That's a little bit of a sign of, of some addiction. And then some people get very addicted build their whole lives around a drug that makes them feel good or um, money and the different things that it can buy or sex or people looking up to them if they're in a position of power there's some gratification there so addiction accompanies is one of the real risks of these um, five kinds of sense pleasure so let me read some passages from the suttas that deal with the Buddha's advice because this is an area um, that is an important part of the training, an important part of the practice. The eye delights in forms, takes delight in forms, rejoices in forms. That has been tamed by the Tathagata, guarded, protected, and restrained. And he teaches the Dhamma for its restraint. So we'll come to some more passages later, but uh, the Buddha teaches a lot about how we live in the world with our five senses open and we don't get caught in the things of the world through attachment. Because this is the source of our bondage. One of the sources is we get caught in our enmeshment and attachment to the five kinds of sense pleasure. So how do we guard that? And we'll come back to that later in this sutta. Okay, the second one is the, um, the taint of being. The, this is bhavasava, which Bhikkhu Bodhi glosses or explains as a craving for existence. So just to think about how widespread this is, how many people do you know who don't care whether they live or die. Honestly, people who are engaged in the activity of living. I know when people are starting to die, they will kind of surrender and say, I'm ready, you know, I'm ready to go. Um, and then there are people who develop uh, a hatred for life or a fear of life and they want to commit suicide to end it. But for people who are engaged in life, do you know any people who don't have a desire to keep going? pretty rare. Most people who are engaged in life don't want to die. You see this very clearly in the animal realm. Animals do not want to die. And this force in us, exactly like the animal realm, we have a craving to continue to exist. So according to the Buddha, this is part of the mental urges that lead us after death to take another birth. For some reason, there is this desire. I may have mentioned this in an earlier class, but I was on my first three-month course, and uh, someone I got to know on the retreat who became a friend afterwards told me that she went up to Joseph Goldstein, who was the teacher on that retreat, and said, um, kind of grabbed him in the hallway, kind of, you know, very urgently, and said, Joseph, why are we here? And Joseph said, do you mean here on this retreat or here at all, you know, in this life? She said, why, why are we here at all? And Joseph said, well, it's because you wanted to see and hear and smell and taste and touch. This is, part, you know, this kind of mixes in with the first one. We want these pleasant experiences of the five senses, and in order to have them, we have to be in a body. <laughs> You notice the five sense doors are physical. So if we aren't in a body, we can't have these 
five pleasant kinds of contact. So this deep craving for existence goes along with this craving for sense, sense contact and sense pleasures. When we think about letting go, really letting go, part of what we would let go of is contact with the world. And that's a hard, that's a very, very deep renunciation. Very hard to do. So. May I ask a question? Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> this craving for existence, which I assume could be the next moment as well as your yes. whole life. Yes. Just craving to be born into the next moment. Yes. Uh, this is uh, something that you can observe. And when you see that happening, like going into the next moment, not being here, you see that unconsciously happening. The one who's watching that, is that, that's, so we could say maybe we have the ego that wants to be reborn, mm-hmm. and then you can see that happening and then relax with it. Yes. The comment was that this craving for, let's call it renewed becoming or craving for becoming, happens not only on a life-to-life level, but a moment-to-moment level. That's very true. And the way that we establish the self in each new moment is by taking a hold of something. Every time we take a hold of something, we establish ourselves in relationship to it. And there is a craving for that, to take a view, to take a stand, to be an owner of, to be a relator to. So we get, by grasping, we get born over and over again in the course of a day. And um, you can see that craving come. I want to be something. I want to become something. I want to do something. Yeah. So this is sometimes called becoming. Sometimes referred to as becoming. Even it's like, though sometimes it can be an action, wanting to do something. It's actually yes. wanting to be the doer. Yeah, yeah, be the doer. So you can see that happening moment by moment. And if you can relax, what relaxing really means is stop grasping. Then that relaxes that becoming. Y- yeah, it, it well, it happens in the very act of taking a hold of something. We are becoming again. Yeah, we come into the we come into the now again. Yeah, yeah, we're taking a new birth, but it is basically future oriented. We want to become something in that way. It, I don't quite understand how this fits into the five taints, but <clears throat> it seems to me that a lot of our obsessing and craving and clinging is around relationship, around love, longing for love, the arguing with <laughs> people in our minds and, you know, just always kind of grasping to get people to love us mm-hmm. so that we feel appreciated. How does that fit into the five tanks? The question is about how our mm-hmm. desire for relationship and connectedness fits into the taints. I want to sort of make two sides of this. I think on the one side, there's a, a natural and healthy interest in connectedness that comes out of metta and compassion. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a wise way that we connect that's not related to the taints. But I think there's a, let's call it neurotic or insecure way that we relate that is based on this taint of um, craving for becoming. And it's, I, I feel it in my own experience is kind of wanting to be affirmed as somebody or somebody who's important to someone else. And then when I feel that insecurity and that need, someone else can provide that by recognizing me, by affirming me, by stating that I'm valuable and that I'm important. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And you can go into a mental whirlwind around that. Yes. <clears throat> yes, especially if it's not right. provided. Right. Yeah. So yeah. How does this really wanting to be Wanting to be born in some way. That yeah. Way. Yeah. Wanting to take a birth as someone who is important, valued, esteemed. Again, I think one of the difficulties of retreat is that we give up those contacts. We're not having those affirmations, the strokes throughout the day. And so on retreat, we often start to feel uh, the inadequacy, the vulnerability, the not being loved, the lack of self esteem. It's one of the things that comes out strongly when we're in silence. And that sort of shows what we're looking for, you might say, in social interaction 
that are driven by need. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's right there too. Thank you. So that's all the taint of uh, becoming, wanting to be, and really, uh, you know, psychologically, it seems to be about wanting to be something solid, trying to find some solid ground in this world which is impermanent, selfless, empty. On some level, we've intuited that emptiness early, early on. We've intuited that impermanence and emptiness. It's like when I was a teenager and somebody told me, you know, the way out of my insecurity was just to be myself. I didn't know what myself was. So that just threw me into more emptiness. You know, I couldn't find myself. That wasn't helpful at all for me. It exposed the emptiness that I was trying to get away from in the first place. Um, and I think we've all intuited, intuited that. And so we're looking for a form of self, a form of self-identity to fill that up. So this is all part of the um, craving for existence. And in its deepest form, it keeps us being born you know, again and again. Being born, dying, being born, dying, over and over. So the third one, in some ways this is the most interesting, is the taint of ignorance, avijasava. This is that fundamental um, force forming the first link of dependent origination. And I think that this is not ignorance of facts. So this is not a conceptual kind of ignorance. This is not about You know, I don't know who the president of Iran is now. Did you notice that there was a new election Mm -hmm. and the most moderate candidate got elected with a majority of the vote? Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, So it's not about knowing facts in the world or what's the population of the world right now or what's coming with global warming. It's not about knowing facts. It's not even about knowing Buddhist facts. It's about not deeply understanding the way things are. Simplest definition, um, I think, is not understanding the Four Noble Truths. The simplest way to think of it, and this this is expressed in the suttas um, a few times as the definition, the very definition of ignorance. Not understanding the Four Noble Truths. Well, is there anybody here who doesn't understand the Four Noble Truths? We've all studied them, right? There's a truth of suffering. The cause is craving. The end of it is the end of craving. And the way to it is the Eightfold Path. We all know that, right? We all understand that. Yeah. So that's what is being pointed to with this fact of ignorance. We may even know it conceptually very well. We might be able to explain it to people and teach it. But we keep getting deceived by dukkha, don't we? We don't see the truth of impermanence. So we think that things may offer a lasting happiness. So we keep taking them up. The only reason we keep holding on is we think something's going to provide a lasting security in a changing world. So as long as we're keeping on grasping, we haven't really understood the Four Noble Truths. It hasn't penetrated deeply enough. So that's why we need to examine these truths over and over and over in all aspects of our experience so that we see them again and again everywhere we turn. So this is one way to understand the Four Noble Truths. Another way is um, not seeing the three characteristics. Again, you know, we don't see the impermanence, so we miss the dukkha. Not understanding the full nature of impermanence, we think that we continue. Self, we think there's a self here that continues over time. This is, a, this is an important association between the self and time. It's not obvious that the concept of I implies time, but it does. If it didn't, why would you worry about your own death? You would say, I'm not going to be there. (laughs) Woody Woody Allen had this great line, you know. He said, "Um, I don't mind about death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) 
So if you understand, yeah, yeah. If you understand self in the right way, you won't be there when it happens. Another you will be there, but this you won't be there. So why worry about it, right? But it's not that simple, of course. We think the I extends over time, so we think it is this I that will die. So. Um, Not understanding the three characteristics is synonymous with not understanding the cause of suffering and the release from suffering. We don't understand impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the truth of of not-self. And these tie in with a, um, a nice little teaching. It doesn't show up in a lot of places, but it's a, it's a very intriguing teaching that uh, can be developed further than we've brought it out so far in the West, called the Four Vipalasa. The Vipalasa, I'll tell you the main sutta reference if you're interested. It's Anguttara 4, Sutta 49, because there are four of these things. And the Buddha said these are four distortions of perception, thought, and view. So this is not just happening on one level. We see something wrongly, and then that turns into a thought about it. We dwell on it with thought. That's a second level. And then we turn those thoughts into a view. That's the third level, which solidifies it. So vipalasa has all three of these levels. And the word itself has been translated as um, distortion, or illusion, or hallucination. And the literal meaning is, um, the etymology of the word is to turn upside down. We've turned things upside down in the way we see reality. And there, we do this in four, four different ways. So I mention this because it's another way of thinking about ignorance, very close to what we've already talked about. So these four distortions are that we see something as permanent, which is impermanent. And so part of what this is doing is making explicit the other side of the three characteristics. We see something as satisfactory or lasting happiness, which is unsatisfactory. We see something as self which is not self. And this is a fourth that is quite interesting. We see something as attractive, which is actually not attractive. Or you could say we see something as beautiful, which is actually not beautiful. And this one is mostly used for sense pleasures. We think sense pleasures are the best route to happiness. Let's put it this way. An uninstructed person will see sense pleasures as the surest route to happiness, really sometimes the only route to happiness. But when looked at with wisdom, we see that the other side of that is disappointment, unhappiness, and then craving for more. The the cycle of addiction is a really good pointer to the true dynamic of sense pleasures. And the, kind of the way I look at them now as a lay person, because lay people are not told stay away from sense pleasures, we have sense pleasures in our lives, is that it's not to become fixated on sense pleasures. And it's um, to continue to understand the ways in which they're unsatisfactory. And then I think we'll have a healthy relationship to them. The first step be to recognize the pleasure mm-hmm. in experience and label it as this is pleasurable experience. Yes. And that will allow some freedom. Mm-hmm. As yep. far as the unsatisfactory, that's another another step of watching, right? Watching, observing. Yes. You could say something more about that. The Buddha, when he talked about sense pleasures, often talked about them in three terms of three things, gratification, danger, and escape. 
So the gratification acknowledges the pleasure that's there. The danger acknowledges what's, what's the risk. The risk is basically if we become addicted to them and need them, think we need them for our well-being, then we're going to be very unhappy. And the escape is not to hold on, not to cling to them. Sense pleasures came the Buddha's way and come the way even of renunciates. They often get good accommodations, good meals, their clothes. You know, as a monk, you can even get fascinated by your, your robes, the quality of the uh, cloth, the dye job, how even the color is, how appealing the color is. When I was a monk in Burma, the last time I was a monk, toward the start of the rains retreat, a layperson came and offered to the monastery a set of robes for every monk out of this very fine cotton that was dyed almost purple. It was almost like the sweaters that you all are wearing today. And when all the monks put on their purple robes together, we were really sharp. <laughs> we all lined up for alms food, and you could have just saluted that, that band. You know, it was very lovely. So even as in the renunciate life, one can become attached to the sense pleasures that, that one has. So it's just really to keep an eye on that, the pleasure of it and the limitation of it. So these vipalasas throw, you know, point out uh, the danger of seeing things as permanent, of lasting happiness, of um, self, and of attractiveness. Because when we see the the danger in sense pleasures, they lose some of the allure. It's not that we shouldn't enjoy them, can't enjoy them, don't enjoy them. They don't have to make us bound if we are wise in our relationship to them. So this is a, um, a comment. This is the, a poem that follows. It's at the end of this sutta that I mentioned from the Anguttara on... Um, the vipalasas. Beings resort to wrong views, their minds deranged, their perceptions twisted. Such people are bound by the yoke of Mara and do not reach security from bondage. Beings continue in samsara, going to birth and death. Having heard the Dhamma, wise people regain their sanity. By the acquisition of right view, they overcome all suffering. So this beings resort to wrong views, that's pointing to the way the vipalasas go from a perception to a thought to a view or a belief. And then the Buddha describes such people as having their minds deranged. That's, fair, that's strong language. Our minds have been put off track, turned upside down by not understanding. So, you know, one way to think about sense pleasures is to compare them to the promise of the path. The path can give true lasting happiness and peace. And seen from that vantage point, sense pleasures are like a consolation prize. If you don't develop the qualities of the path and find real happiness, then there are these sense pleasures to keep us gratified along the way. And of course, that's what that's what our society, our Western society, offers people. It offers food and drink and media and music and television to provide the consolation prize to true, deep spiritual happiness. So ignorance, uh, as we mentioned earlier, is a synonym for delusion or the Pali word for delusion is moha. Uh, but it's, ignorance is often considered to be something more fundamental or the, the more fundamental side of the force of uh, delusion. With ignorance, we often get the idea that there's it, just something sort of dimming our view a little bit, that we're just not quite seeing things right, but we're just a little bit off, but it's more sinister than that. Ignorance weaves a web 
that is constantly misleading us. It's not just like a dimming of the light. It is sending us in a completely wrong direction. And it's doing it more or less all the time. You notice how when, you know, you try to sit in meditation and we think, oh, you know, I should just sit and be at peace. The body's at peace. Why can't the mind be at peace? But the mind runs on with 10 million different kinds of concern. Those kinds of concern are ignorance weaving its web again and again, saying, you need to be worried about this. Don't forget about that. Keep an eye on this. And they have a way of establishing the self and all of its concerns again and again. And so these messages that thoughts are putting out um, beguile us and lead us away from the promise of the path. But we just take it for granted. We just say, oh, that's what the mind does. And we don't see that it's an active force that's taking us away from the Dhamma, away from the possibility of freedom. Um, I gave a talk on this that's up on Dharma Seed. If you're kind of interested in this aspect, um, I think it's called Impulses Come from Ignorance. It has those two words in the title, so if you go to my page on Dharma Seed and you search Impulses, Ignorance, that talk should come up. Because if you remember the chain of dependent origination, avijja, ignorance, is the first link. Do you remember the second link? Mental formation, sankhara. And that refers to this busy, active um, nature of thoughts and emotions that takes us out of the present moment and leads us astray. So um, the way it's said in the Pali is avijja, pachaya, sankhara. Ignorance gives rise to conditioned impulses, karmic impulses. So it's weaving this web all the time. And that's why it's very striking when we step out of ignorance briefly. And it's, very, it's rare that we step out of ignorance, but if we step out of ignorance briefly, there's a shock when it comes back in and that motor starts up again. All the, the engine of self-concern starts up again. It's, it's like falling out of um, heaven into, I don't know, earthly life, something like that, again. So this restlessness that's in the mind that we encounter when we try to meditate um, is a potent force, even though it's just sort of one of the five hindrances and it's right next to sleepiness and doesn't look like that big a deal. Restlessness does not go away until full liberation. It's one of the last fetters. I have a question related to that. So can you speak just a little bit about the physical aspect of that? Because deep in meditation, I think I can feel that kind of very subtle stress. And mm-hmm. Sometimes I even feel how it's holding me or preventing me from mm-hmm. completely relaxing. Or Yes. So a question about the physical side of restlessness. I think what's happened, especially being in the West today, everything is so fast-paced, there's so much stimulation in our life, that we go through years of life and the body can't take it all in. And so the body is kind of vibrating at a higher rate than is healthy, in the West especially. If you go to Asian countries, more traditional indigenous cultures, you'll feel people are slower and they kind of have their feet on the ground and their bodies just don't vibrate. They talk more slowly. Their bodies don't vibrate at as high a rate. And this you know, energy that comes up in Western culture so much, we still have to function. So we can't let it be like that all the time because it makes too much <coughs> movement in the mind. So that's where tension I think why tension comes into the body. We want to control that strong energy. And so we tense, and then we can do our job, but we come to retreat, we start to relax a little, and then we find the body is still wound up. And so it takes quite a bit of time in meditation for the body to lose some of that wound up energy. So just one last thing, and then I'll come back to you. 
So when we talk about samatha, which is often translated serenity, there's samatha and vipassana, kinds of effects of meditation, the, the serenity that needs to come in is both of the mind, that the mind slows down, but also that the body becomes more serene by letting go some of that stored up, overstimulated energy. It's not the stress that we talked about, no. which I know what we're okay. talking about, but there is this place somewhere deep inside me that I think is ignorance, that kind of <clears throat> looking for something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, like, so maybe a little more fundamental than that is a little bit of vigilance. It's like we've... Uh, looked for what can possibly threaten, what could harm us. It's an, it's an animal survival mechanism that we're always on the lookout for danger. And so in meditation, at some point, I think we all come upon that vigilant um, part of personality that's sort of looking for is anything going to threaten. And then that does prevent us from relaxing. But then if we just open to that and feel that, and wisdom, wisdom is very important here. Wisdom can start to see, oh, that's not necessary. And it can let that relax also. Um, so that's something I think one has to go through really in, in calming the mind also, another layer. Yeah, thank you. So um, we've been uh, sitting for a little over an hour and a quarter. And I think this might be a nice time for a break. I think we'll end at four today. I've found in doing these classes that it's hard to keep our attention on the suttas for more than about two and a half hours. <laughs> so I think we'll, we'll probably plan to end about four. I think it's set on the schedule 4.30, but I found that's a little too long. So let's have a 15-minute break now, and we'll, we'll come back for one more hour. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.